Thank you to all of you who just read. I, I love Easter morning because of the creativity that we get to experience as we celebrate Jesus. Whether it's creativity of the readers, whether it's the musicians here or the band down below, the songs we sing. I love hearing the story of Jesus read. Thank you, Graydon, for reading that at the very beginning, the resurrection story. It, but I think it's important for us this morning to pause for a moment and to think about what it is that we're really here celebrating this morning. What we're putting all this investment of time and energy into here this morning. Right? At the heart of what we're doing, we are here this morning because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now pause with me. Sit with that for just a moment. Let that sink in. You believe that a dead body came back to life. You believe that a heart that had stopped beating for three days suddenly started beating again. You believe that, that these lungs, that the air had grown stale within them for three days, suddenly started breathed out that stale air and started bringing in fresh air again. You believe that, that the synapses of the brain began to fire again and come to life. You believe that these eyes that went blind saw and ears that went deaf suddenly could hear again. And you are here because you believe that the gravestone was rolled away from the inside. Did you ever stop to think how preposterous all of that is? If we're honest with ourselves, I'll, I'll be honest with myself. Sometimes, sometimes our doubts, my doubts, make this resurrection story feel like wishful thinking, right? Back when I was a kid, every birthday, I would make the exact same wish before I blew out all my candles. I would wish for a pony. Every year, oh, I want a horse so bad. And so I'd make my wish, I'd close my eyes, I'd blow out all my candles and wait for the horse to appear, and guess what? The horse never appeared. It never came. It was a totally unrealistic wish, right? We lived in a suburb with a small backyard. It would be unrealistic to put a horse in that backyard, not to mention probably illegal, right? That did not stop me as a kid every year from wishing and hoping and thinking that maybe this is the year that I get a horse. Kids don't let little things like facts get in the way of their fantastic dreams. That's what adults do, right? We as adults, we learn to live by facts instead of these fantastic dreams, right? And so all of those unrealistic fantasies that we lived with as kids, they get blown away by the facts. Of course, I'm never going to get a horse. The facts tell me I can't. Right? So our daily calendars, your daily calendar that lists all your responsibilities, dismisses every fantasy you ever had of being a princess and just sitting around all day in your castle. 
right? And, and you're, the bills that keep on coming every month and recur all the time, they dismiss that fantasy of just, you just spend whatever money you want to spend, go buy whatever car you want, vacation wherever you want, build the house, whatever you want. Fantasies dispelled by facts. Our bodies, our, our abilities, or lack thereof, dismiss those fantasies of becoming a player for the Detroit Tigers or an Olympic gymnast or something cool like that. Instead, we end up sitting behind a desk, something that actually brings a paycheck, right? When fact and fantasy collide, what wins? Facts. Facts win. Well, this Easter morning, we're looking at that collision again of fact and fantasy, right? And we aren't the first ones. We aren't the first ones who have been forced to wrestle through this collision, through this dilemma about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, we get to learn from the very first person who is forced to make this faith-filled decision for Jesus, who is forced to make the same choice that you and I need to make. Take out your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John 20 is found on page 881 in the Bibles that you have in front of you. John 20 is the gospel of John's resurrection account. You heard Graydon read from John 20 at the very beginning of the service, right? And, and John goes on to tell us about all the people who believe in the resurrection because they saw the facts of the resurrection, right? So in verse 8, we're told that John believes because he, like Peter, looked inside the tomb and saw the burial clothes all nicely folded up and the body gone. And, and in the next section, we read that Mary Magdalene sees Jesus Christ alive. And so because she sees him, she believes. And and then in verse 19, Jesus appears to all of the disciples, and he appears to them, and he talks with them, and they're overjoyed, and they believe because they see him. All the disciples, that is, except for one, except for Thomas, because Thomas wasn't with them. And so Thomas becomes the first one to hear the story of a resurrected Jesus, and being forced to choose whether he's going to step out in faith and believe that story or not. He's the first one who has to do what you and I have to do. You and I who weren't there to see it. Listen to his story starting at verse 24 of chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, from the little bit we get to know about Thomas, we see that he was a man of little imagination who lived almost exclusively by fact. Right? If he couldn't see it, if he couldn't touch it, if he couldn't read about it online from a reliable source that he could trust and verify, he wasn't going to believe it. You know, we, we know him by the name Doubting Thomas, right? I think that name, though, has given him a bad rap, inappropriately. He wasn't so much a doubter as he was a very sound thinker. And if we knew him personally, I think we would respect and admire him for that. I think we would probably think a lot like Thomas thought. You know, the gospel stories don't tell us a lot about Thomas. But in the glimpses we do get to see of him, he is anything but this hard-headed doubter that we have, you know, painted him out to be. This isn't the first time we get to see Thomas in the gospels. The first time we see Thomas in action is actually in John chapter 11, where we see a very different Thomas. See, in, in John chapter 11, Jesus is with his disciples, and, and he finds out that, that his good, good, good friend Lazarus is sick to the point of death. And so Jesus is thinking about going back to Judea, right near the city of Jerusalem, to where Lazarus lived to go visit Lazarus. The disciples don't want to go. They think it's a bad idea because Jesus had just been there. He had just been in that region, in that vicinity, and the people got so angry at him, so mad at him, that they tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. And so the disciples are trying to convince Jesus, yeah, no, not a great idea. Let's not head back to Judea. Let's not go there. And Jesus hears all their, their debate and discussion, and he finally just says to them, let's go. We're going to go. Thank you for your input. We're still going. That's when Thomas speaks up. Thomas, of all the disciples, stands up and he says to Jesus and to all the rest of the disciples, okay, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, those certainly are not words of doubt. Those are words of courage. Those are words of deep, deep devotion. Thomas was extremely loyal to Jesus and to Jesus' mission, even though he probably didn't understand either of those very well. Thomas looked the prospect of death in the face, and he chose death with Jesus rather than life without Jesus. Pretty profound. Loyal follower. But this great loyalty of Thomas was paired with a severe pessimism. Right? You, you saw that in what he just said. Yeah, let's go, and we're probably going to die with him, right? Thomas reminds me a lot of Eeyore 
in the Winnie the Pooh story. You know Eeyore, right? The, the, the stuffed donkey who is as loyal as anything, but he's also just plain depressing, isn't he? So Winnie the Pooh gets stuck in this front door. He can't get out. Who's the first one to show up to help him? Eeyore, right? Loyal friend. He's there to help him. He gets there to help him, and he looks at the situation and says, yeah, you're probably going to stay there forever. Yep, you're never going to get out of there, right? You know people like that in your life. People who, who can't dream, who can't imagine, who can't see anything other than the worst possible scenario. All they see is, is facts all stacked up that add to, that come out to the fact that nothing good can happen. That's Thomas. That's Thomas. He faces up to the facts and can see no further. So Thomas sees that Jesus barely escaped with his life last time he was near Jerusalem. And there's no way he can do it again. So the facts are that Jesus is going to die. Oh, well, let's go die with him. That's a loyalty that goes beyond what the others had shown. So he was pessimistic. But Thomas was also, lastly, intensely honest. And I think his honesty is probably a result of, of his reliance on fact and his lack of imagination. Right? So, so, for example, in John chapter 14, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he's, he's giving them some really comforting words. He tells them that he's going to leave them soon, but then he gives them all kinds of comfort. It's a passage that, that I read often at funerals. I know you've heard it before. So Jesus has his disciples gathered around. He says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Jesus says these words, and all the disciples nicely smile and nod their heads. Except for Thomas. He raises his hand, and he says, I have no clue what you just said. Uh, that, That makes no sense to me, Jesus. Can you just set aside all these riddles and these these metaphors and just tell me what you think? Tell me what you're really trying to say, because I don't get it. Thomas doesn't try to hide, any, hide anything. If he didn't get it, he said so. And I'm glad he said so. Because I think I wouldn't have gotten it either. And I think I would have been too ashamed to admit it. I think I would have joined the other disciples and think, mm-hmm, yeah. I don't have a clue what he just said. But because Thomas dared to be honest, we get to hear Jesus respond and say, Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So glad I got to hear that. Thomas, loyal, honest, someone who's willing to die for Jesus. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to that step of faith, well, let's just say that Thomas much preferred facts to faith. With that type of personality, how in the world was he supposed to believe in a resurrection? 
right? With the facts that he had, he couldn't help but doubt their story, right? I mean, here are the facts that Thomas had to deal with. He had seen with his own eyes Jesus hanging on a cross. And people don't live through a crucifixion when the Romans are in charge. He had seen with his own eyes a spear go into Jesus' side and puncture his heart and, and blood and water came pouring out, which is a true, you don't get punctured in the heart with a spear and live. And if water pours out, that proves that you're already dead. He had seen with his own eyes a sealed tomb where Jesus' body had been laid in the tomb and sealed shut and Roman guards posted on the outside. And the only time that he had ever heard of somebody being raised from the dead or seen someone being raised from the dead was when Jesus did the raising of the dead. And now Jesus was the one who was dead. There was no one else in the world who had ever raised somebody from the dead. So how was he supposed to believe that Jesus was alive? Resurrections like that just don't happen. And with those facts, can you blame him at all for not listening and not believing to these disciples' outlandish story? They did not have fact on their side. Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus had appeared, and they don't have any evidence to support this supposed visit from Jesus that they're talking about. There is no independent third-party witness to corroborate this resurrection. I can't blame him for doubting. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Elvis is alive because somebody saw him in Burger King down in Kalamazoo years ago? Yeah, you laugh, because it's a joke. That's what they're telling Thomas to believe? That's what they're telling, I don't believe Elvis is alive, and I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes, and until I hear him start singing a song again. That's Thomas. That's fact. That's what they're asking Thomas to believe. Take my word for it, he's alive. That faith flies in the face of the facts that Thomas was holding on to. And he's just not the kind of guy that's going to let go of that too quickly, and I can't blame him. Thomas demands those facts. Unless I, can, unless I see the holes in his hand and actually stick my finger in him, unless I can get my hand into his side, I'm not believing. I need some proof. Again, before we condemn Thomas, would you? My guess is each one of us would have responded in exactly the same way, especially all you accountants and engineers out there, right? You love facts. You know the facts. Especially those of you on, I learned from someone on the admin team that hope is not a strategy, right? You need the facts. You need the plan. We live by facts, not by dreams and wishes and hopes. And the fact was, Jesus is dead. Thomas needed something more. And Jesus gives it to him. Right? It's a week later. And suddenly Jesus appears again to the disciples. And this time, Thomas is with him. He says, he starts by saying, peace be with you. Then he immediately turns his attention towards Thomas. 
and he gives an instant replay of his first appearance. It's a private showing. I think, he, I think maybe he did it just for Thomas. I think maybe he did it just for you and me who are in the same position as Thomas. And he looks at Thomas, he says, come here. Here's the hole in my hand. Go ahead and stick your finger right in it, just like you wanted to do. He said, look, Thomas, here's the hole in my side. I bet your hand will fit. Go ahead and put your hand in the hole. Stop doubting, because it's true. Thomas, believe. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't get angry at Thomas and say, you should have had more faith. He doesn't do that. He doesn't diminish Thomas' standing with the rest of his disciples. They believed you didn't, Thomas. You're kind of a second, second fiddle here now. No. He meets Thomas right where he's at, and he gives Thomas the facts that he needs. Here you go. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Know that I'm real. Know that I was dead, and know that I'm alive. And Thomas, did you notice his reaction? This ultimate fact finder? He throws his unimaginative life of facts out the window. We, it doesn't tell us at all that he went up to Jesus and said, okay, hold that hand out. Let me, let me, let me stick my finger in. It, it doesn't say that he pulled out his measuring tape and started in his notebook and started recording all the facts. No, he doesn't take Jesus up on that offer. He just falls to his knees in front of Jesus, his risen Savior, and worships him because all of his doubts are blown away. They are blown away by the risen Jesus standing in front of him. The impossible has happened. The dead have come to life. His dream has become reality. His fantasy has become fact. Jesus is alive. And Jesus says to Thomas, there you go. Now stop doubting and believe. The literal Greek, it reads, do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Right? Thomas shows us that there's a difference between knowing and believing. Right? Thomas knew the facts about Jesus. He knew all the facts. He had spent three years walking with Jesus, listening to him, talking with him, watching him, gathering more and more information and facts about him. He knew all the facts about Jesus, and those facts led him to know Jesus well with his head. But here in faith, he's led to believe in Jesus with all his heart. When Thomas saw Jesus alive, he suddenly, suddenly realized that following Jesus went way beyond adding up all the facts. Instead, Jesus rewrote the facts, rewrote reality. Now, free from the limitations of these facts, Thomas can move forward in faith. It's not just a head thing for him anymore. Now it's a heart thing. Thomas's heart fully belongs to Jesus. Because of faith. Do not be an unbeliever, but believe. Some of us sitting here this morning are just like Thomas.
We are honest. We are true. We've been following Jesus maybe for years and years and years, maybe all of our lives. And we know all the facts about Jesus in our heads. We can win any trivia contest you want. We know those facts. We know those stories. We've been going to church long enough that we are familiar with them all. Our head is full. But Jesus isn't looking for us just to know. He's not looking only for knowing. He's looking for believing. For believing. And there's a difference. You know, the Apostle John, he makes this this believing part so clear at the end of this chapter. Verses 30 and 31. He tells us clearly why he wrote this whole book. Why he told us the stories of Jesus. Why he gave us all the facts of what Jesus did and what Jesus said and where he went and who he talked to. Did he give us all those facts in the gospel so that we would know? No. Listen to the reason he gives. He writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's all so that you and I might believe. Jesus doesn't simply want us to know about him in our heads. He's looking for people who will believe with their hearts. Because salvation doesn't come through knowing. Salvation comes through believing. We have all the facts. All the facts are right here in this book. Right there in the Bible. You can read them. You know them. But the facts are not enough. It takes a step of faith to believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. It takes coming to the place where we follow Thomas's pattern, where, where we fall on our knees before Jesus and proclaim, my Lord and my God, I believe. And we give our hearts and lives to him. Thomas's knowing was totally transformed into believing. And that changed everything. Because believing is what will radically transform your life, not just knowing. Faith is what will give you courage in life, not just facts. That's how it was for Thomas. This moment changed everything for him. At that moment, he committed himself. He believed and he followed Jesus with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Took him all the way to India. And in India... He died for Jesus with a sword being run through him. I can guarantee you that Thomas did not die for facts that he knew. Thomas was willing to die for the faith that he believed in. For faith in a resurrected Jesus. And I doubt that many of us here will choose to live or die for facts that we know in our heads. We live and we die for what we believe in our hearts. We live and we die for, for the dream that we believe became a reality. We live and we die 
for a hope that is beyond what we can prove, and yet we still believe. We live and we die for an amazing love that was proven on the cross, that was established by an empty tomb. We live and we die for Jesus, not because we know the facts about him, but we live and we die for Jesus when in faith we recognize him for who he truly is, our risen Lord and our loving God. And so today, Easter Sunday, we celebrate our wishful thinking that has become fact. And we celebrate that the fact of Jesus' resurrection brings us into a life of saving faith that gives us courage to live and to die for our loving Savior. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, you know the hearts of every person in this room. You know that there's many of us here who are still collecting facts. Some of us here maybe have grown up in the church. We've learned all the facts. We know all the stories. And when it came time to own them for ourselves, we turned our, our backs on you. The facts weren't enough for us. And now we come back maybe once a year when mom and dad want us to come or when we feel like we should. But we're still just living with a few facts and that's all. Others of us here, we still do come every Sunday. We, we know all the truth. We know the facts really, really well. And yet there's an emptiness there. There's an empty ritual that we're walking through. There's a, a blandness to the stories that we know and the facts that we hold on to. Jesus, this might be the pivotal moment in our lives. Just as the, the morning that you walked out of that tomb was the pivotal moment in history that changed everything, may your Holy Spirit make this a pivotal moment for all of us where maybe the hardness of our heart is softened and maybe the barriers that we set up as we braced ourselves for another Easter worship get torn down. And we're able to see not just the facts, but we're able for the first time to step forward in faith and along with Thomas say, you, Jesus, are my Lord and my God. I believe. I believe that you died and rose again, and I believe that you did it for me. I believe that you are love, and I believe that you love me. I believe that you have opened the door for eternity, Jesus, to be forgiven and set free. And I believe you made that offer to me. Lord God, make this a pivotal moment. And for those of us who have taken that step of faith, who are living in the joy of that love, who are 
who are experiencing the fullness of a life lived for you and seeing your purposes lived out and your kingdom come and your will be done, I pray that maybe this is the pivotal moment where you reinforce that, that joy, that gift, where we hear your love spoken to us again, where we feel it deep down in the marrow of our bones. And we let it shape our lives every day, every moment. What we do, what we say, how we spend, what we give, how we serve, who we love. May this be a pivotal moment that changes us for eternity. Jesus, you were dead and you are alive. May we not only know that fact, but might, may we believe that dream. May we receive that gift from you and live in gratitude to you. We love you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.